being charged with attempted murder, um, serious assault to permanent disfigurement, permanent impairment, endangerment of life, times two. So that was, they're two longer words for attempted murder, basically. So you're talking three attempted murders almost. Um, he shouted, effing stab back out. And I spun around and I said, you'll stab nobody. As soon as that's happened, he's jumped up, he's pulled the stand out. He caught me for that there. That was, that was the whole spot done that, but he caught me for that there in a straight line. And I, I wasn't sure, but I, I said, what did you do there? He caught me for there, running through the ear. I said, right, we're on. I'm going to tap him. He caught me, the one running in the back of the head. Three in the back of the head. And I'm strangling him. I'm strangling the life of him. And the blood was pouring at him. And I knew deep down that that was no paper cut. I mean, and what was happening was, my, my grip on him was starting to get looser and looser, and I was starting to get woozier and woozier. Two, three seconds, felt like days, uh, him pointing the gun at my head, and then I seen his horn shooting, and I thought, he's not getting the ball, he's not shooting me in the head anyway, and uh, my stomach was sort of, oh my God, it was like a wake, but then he went like that, bang, and blasted his, uh, tried to shoot his in the stomach, and shot his in the top of the head, and I've turned around and I'm shouting, Shoot him again, shoot him again. He'll come back, he'll come back. And at that point, I thought, fuck you, man. And I just burst him and I managed to get the keys and I'm up the door and I fell into the clothes. One of them crowned us with a hatchet right at the head. All the blood was pouring down me by that point. I was like, pulling myself up the stairs. Now, Paul Ferris was at the top, top one. You had your Blank McDonald, you had, um, Jamber McLean, who I knew personally. Jamber was a good guy. Um, you had, like your McGovern's and all that, you had all your, your, your real villains at that point, but Paul Ferris always stood out down there, as I say, there wasn't, there wasn't any of us that didn't know the name, there's still to this day, you still hear his name being whispered in pubs, uh, but I mean, he's an old man now, isn't he, I'm not saying it's bad about him, but he's an older man now, but he still, he still holds that sort of charisma and fear up here, so I, that, that was the sort of names that we all held. Right, everybody, I am here with Paul Smith out of Glasgow. He's done 14 years. It's a hell of a story. I know many people have seen the other stuff we've done with Glaswegians, Paul Ferris, Ian Blink McDonald. People are fascinated by the many stories of the, of, of the various crime families and factions and how it's developed over the years. And Paul is from a slightly younger generation than the Ferris and them, but, but he is familiar. Uh, huge thank you for coming on, Paul. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your full life story then, yep. we just, we just like to grip the viewers with one of your craziest stories, perhaps, from your prison time, if, you, if you've got one of them, we could start with, oh, please. Most definitely, most definitely, you know, prison, prison is a violent place, of course, as all prisons are, and Scotland is no different, but it's not all 24-7 violence, I mean, there was some funny stories as well, but I did see some nasty stuff, um, some really violent stuff, but one of the, the, the best stories, um, I don't know if you ever remember, you used to get to be 30 pence bottles of iron brew that were about that size. Um, and, well, you, I'm saying iron brew, you probably wouldn't remember that down there, but up here they were really popular. And in the visiting room in Pullman, um, 
as a lass he used to come to see and they never searched women, never. It was um, maybe a bit of security lapse in their bath, but I certainly took advantage of it. And I'd say to her, I says, um, start filling them with whiskey and put a wee bit of iron brew in them. And wait two days, wear a, so put four in it, wear a long, now the long kind of three-quarter length coats of the women wear, put four of them in, go out, go in, go out to the canteen, buy the sweets, and then set them on the table. So I used to sit there, knocking them back, knocking them back. And then Alas, she used to say, I, I thought I was brand new, and Alas used to say, she'd see me, I'd be starting to go like that. And it's uh, starting to get louder and louder. And one time, um, it was another lass that came up and she came up with vodka. And I don't know why she thought, uh, she didn't think I put an iron brew in it. She came up with straight vodka and an iron brew, but a wee bit suspicious. Knocked it back, total blackout, woke up the segregation unit and get told that I'd attempted now. I never actually hit a screw. I attempted to hit a screw. I stood up and basically fell boom, Right, flat, flat my face, and they all jumped in tapis. Um, that was certainly no the end of me getting alcohol or uh, other substances into there. We used to get uh, the fans, they would fling big, uh, big two litre bottles full of booze, um, the, the, the parcel and that, sellotaped it, and it would come right there. And we had boys in the gardening, and they used to be all sitting, they were all lined up. Like they were waiting on different people and they were all coming there into their bins and they'd run down to the halls, they'd hustle through the windies to you. And um, one time we'd, we all swallowed eckies and we were all boozing and we forgot we'd do the education and we'd all just took eckies and that, but we were all young boys, you know, like 16 or 17. And, um, and as, if you've taken ecstasy before, you know what I'm talking about. The jaw starts to go... And the heat, exactly, exactly. The eyes are starting to do that. And we were sitting in class, and it was like somebody was tapping the pencil, and that was enough beats for us. We were all sitting there, <laughs> we were all telling us, I see you, you go out get I mean, you're going to start a business. I love you and all that. It was complete madness. Um, the art teacher couldn't cope. He was cracking up. He shouted to the screws. Oh, these bastards are in their own drugs. And the screws keep <laughs> just laughed because they nicked me were in and carted his back of the hall. You know, I've got millions of funny stories like that, but there's also a lot, there was a lot of violence I seen in the YOs. It was mere slashings. Um, a lot, a lot of slashings. I seen a boy getting slashed in a couple of chips once and it was, it was disgusting. It was, it was all bravado. It was all young boys wanting to show how hard they were. And a boy had gave his pal extra chips on the pass and the boy came up and only gave him a couple and an argument broke out and the boy ruined it right out of the pass and slashed him. It was, it was disgusting. I had a food and everything. It was, it was really nasty. Um, the cons were different. The cons, I mean, I get moved up to shots in 2005. Paul wouldn't have done a but at point. I wasn't even 21 yet. You're meant to be 21 before you go to an adult prison up here, I don't know if it's the same than your way, but up here it's 21. I think they just did enough. They were all causing chaos daily. The, the screws couldn't handle us. The, the governor, governor just hated everyone is, and I think they just went, you know what, just get them to hell, get them out of the door, and put them in an adult prison. Um, first day up there, we were sitting in reception, and we are walking through. And it was, the best way to describe it is if you ever remember uh, uh, that Australian man, what was it called? I forget. 
the Jew, the, the Australian man, the old Jew man, the female Jew back in the day. Um, I'll come back to this, but when I was walking down, it was all that dark brick and it looked exactly prisoner cell block H. It looked identical to that. And I'm walked in and then all the bells started getting off. And a boy, a boy had been stabbed in the hairdressers. I remember sitting and to myself, fuck me, you're not in Kansas anymore. This is, this is serious, serious stuff up here. And, um, you know, there was boys up there doing 30 years, maybe longer, a lot, a lot of lifers. So there was people up there, I mean, when you stepped out of line in that jail, it, was, it, it really earned its reputation as being the most violent jail in Scotland. And I believe to this day it still is. But uh, I think the worst thing I've ever seen that turned me sick was... It was in Kamarnock, it was in a um, Kamarnock prison in the gym hall. A boy had, for some altercation, I don't know what it was, but two boys sat about him with a big 50 dumb, the big weights, 50 dumb, and he was cracking it off his head, and another boy was stabbing him, and it was, it was sickening, Sean. There wasn't, I've, I've seen violence for years, but that's turned my stomach. And you know that way you wanted to help the guy, but you thought, I don't want it in the day. I don't want to be the next one lying under that. And even the screws and everything were gone. Please, boys, he's had enough. You're going to kill him. You're going to kill him. And, oh, my God, that that's, I would say by far that is the worst thing I've ever seen other than probably the worst fight I've ever been in the jail. That was, that was really, really bad. That command up was a disaster there, please. Wow. This is... um. The grave notes. That's, that's horrific, isn't it? What you just said, right there. It's thrown my head off a bit. Yeah, I'm um, just 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 thinking about that. Did he get scraped up and sent to hospital or what? No, oh, it was, it was the paramedics were brought right into the right into the prison, right into the gym hall, and we were all evacuated out. And I, I mean, the, the guy survived because the boys didn't get charged with attempted murder. And I, I heard through the grapevine that one of them got out for ten years. Um, added on to the fifteen year he was already then. Um, but it was a serious one. It was really, really serious. How that guy survived, I very much doubt if he walked away without brain damage or speech impairment or whatever. But Akimanox got a spotty past. I mean, there was a boy murdered in there a few years back. I think it's only jail, only time in Scotland MD's ever been murdered in custody, certainly in my lifetime anyway. Um, there's also, there's been multiple things because I know, I know that the SPS, going back to them trying to do something, sorry, my daughter's trying to, just, right. um, there's no that the SPS were, they're, they're trained, these were, what, guys working in Tesco two months before and then they're put in with some of the worst criminals in Scotland and they're expected to control them, it just doesn't work. Wow, alright Paul, let, let's go back then to how you got into this situation. What was it like for you growing up there in Glasgow? I assume you were born in Glasgow. Well, I was born in Cumbernauld. It's, it's the borders, right in the border of Glasgow. I mean, it was an overspill of Glasgow, so all your mums and dads all came from Glasgow, every one of them, because what had happened is in the 60s, uh, the city got too much. The, the people were living in the type of people, and they just they built Cumbernauld as like an overspill. So... We're, we're, we're 15 minutes from Glasgow, but I certainly have been in Glasgow my full life. Um, for me, starting out, you know, we we started out um, when I was a boy, we were just coming out of Margaret Thatcher era, and there's, I think, the only two two words 
Mayor hated in Scotland and Margaret, Margaret Thatcher's probably Celtic Rangers. It's, um, she was, she, she really wasn't liked up here. And with, with good reason. I mean, she, she done a lot of bad things to this country. That being said, there was, um, a lot of single parents. I came from a single parent home myself in the beginning and money was, money was tight. You know, it was, um, it was always tight. It was, in a way, a lot of ways how I got into chefing as well. So I'll get to in a minute. But money was money was tight. But what was what you got in spades was violence, drugs, and antisocial behaviour. That was right in your doorstep. You didn't have to go looking for it. You you to your window and you seen it. And it was I mean, you used to look at it when I was a boy. You'd see them all bat or the young man's battling in the street, and I thought that's great. But you know, everything for the outside's always great. When you're you're outside looking in, always looks a lot better than when you're in it. Because when you're in it, all you can see is the negative, and you're wanting back out. And me being me and all, I mean, there's nothing stopping me going and getting a job. I don't believe in all that crap because I came for this, this, and this, and this. I had to become a criminal. Nonsense, complete nonsense. I plenty of my pals that work every day of their life still day to this day. Me personally, I gravitated towards that. I loved it. I loved. The, the commotion, I loved everything about it. And, you know, I, I was as violent as I could have been. I was also a, a thieving me shite and all. I mean, they say, they say, keep the stole it and it wasn't nailed down. Well, if it was nailed down, I'd have to stick a hammer and stole it anyway. There wasn't much I wouldn't have. Um, Paul, what we, was your first experience of violence that you were involved in? First experience of violence that I was involved in, um, that was... Fair back as I remember, um, there was a bit of a gang fight we were all stoning in maybe six or seven days, and a, another mob had come up for another scheme, housing estate scheme as we call it up here, and they had an altercation broke out, and the boy got stabbed, and um, one of his pals thought that I had stabbed him. I actually didn't stab him, my pal did, but I never. And he went for his, and I just I swung the pole, and I, I, was, I don't think I was even meant to hit anything, but I clocked him right in the side of the eye, and uh, um, it just it fell, and the blood was everywhere, and another one was lying, he'd been stabbed, and I thought, oh, God, man, we were only young boys, we were only 13 at that time. Um, the violence, for, which I experienced, though, God, it was right young. I mean, you know, it was I, there was a boy who stabbed quite badly, I... And I was I was in when I was a boy, and you go to man, that scared the shit out of me. It really did. I'm terrified. I was this guy lying, uh, what I thought was dead. He didn't die, but I, I thought he was. So, you know, going back to my very first account of violence, I would have to say it was that. It might no guarantee it, but it's certainly the first I can remember. And was it a case of violence was necessary for survival, or did violence give you like released tension? You know, it could definitely be a bit of both. You're either a lion or a lamb in this world. And unfortunately, lambs get picked on up here in the streets I grew up in. It wasn't it fair. Poverty never is. Um, so you certainly, you better make a decision early in life. And that decision, you better be committed to it. But also... Of course, you, you see all this, you see all this nonsense growing up, and you, you, you've got to be very vigilant at what your kids see, 
because I know the stuff I've seen growing up and I'm very, very vigilant to the stuff my kids can see because you, you that turns into resentment and boils inside into pure rage. So I most definitely have a bit of both. Did the violence disrupt your school years? Uh, definitely. I, I, mean, I got expelled twice. Um, the first time I got expelled, uh, I went for a teacher. I was dyslexic. Couldn't I? I was really... I, I never learned to read or write, really, until... I was in the jail, um, and I was lazy as well, I wasn't just dyslexic, I was just lazy and I hated school, I loved home economics, hated the rest of it, and uh, a teacher used to, he the hard on for us, he hated us for whatever reason, I don't know, and it just blew up one day, and um, a big, we were in arts and crafts and the big wooden ball and a soap, I just I took a swing, I missed him, I never went anywhere near him, but Maybe they didn't even intentionally try to happen, but I took a swing at them, and it was just pure built-up rage. And I got expelled for the first school for that. And then the second school, um, I'd been caught twice with a lot back in school, and they just went, you know what, enough's enough. Get them out of school, send them to college. They sent us to Cumberland College to the chefing, and I loved it. I loved being in... There was this pressure. It was reminded you of some in the streets, but unlike school, you could the tutor was telling you to go and fucking do this and do that. Just like it was a normal chef at the end of the day, and screaming at you as such. I loved it all at a young age, and then um, at this point, our money got a lot better. My mad made my stepdad for years now, and we were lucky enough to take me to Mexico. But I told the college, and the college put it down. To two weeks absent and struck his ass, which was a really bad cognitive test because I really did get into it. And I think maybe, and I can't guarantee it, but maybe if I had told him and he kept us in college, maybe I would have stuck in it to chefing and went a different way. Or maybe not. Maybe I would have just went the way I used to. I went. But it's, um, as I said, it wasn't all just violence. You know, there was... It was plenty of fun times. Um, we used to go into Asda and Tesco, and remember, I mean, I, I'm big, certainly chubby these days, but I'm a lot taller. But I used to be a tiny wee guy, tiny skinny wee guy, and we used to just go into the drink out, and we'd always have this older woman with, and we're loading in forty ounces upon forty ounces, and anybody with a brain heat must have thought, well, did we say two Wednesdays? And we'd put Chris Nora on top, two right at the door with a trolley. We're doing that constantly now. We're getting two up selling a tall trolley for two hundred pound. Probably maybe four, five, six hundred pound off a buzzer. And the, this old woman was taking all day long off us. And for there we were just doing our teenager day buying ironically, you were selling booze to buy booze, but then you'd be buying drugs and all that as well and <laughs> um having some of the best times ever. I mean I remember the first time I took a sweetie, an Eki. I swear to God, I've, I've never had a kiss for God before, but I thought he just gave us a big sloppy winch. It was, it was incredible. <laughs> how, how old were you, Paul? I was, I was just on 13, and I took wow. a half a sweetie. Me and my pal off a, a Mitsubishi. You can still remember it, a big double Mitsubishi. And yeah. um, I remember, we were too young, obviously, to get any dancings and all that, but my mate had a strobe light, and the strobe light was gone and the music was gone and then everything started slowing down and I'm telling you Sean I was convinced I'd found a secret language in that song and it was only talking to me 
and I was sitting there like ah, and my, oh, it was brilliant. I mean, I, I can't, I can't turn around and see it, wasn't it? Because I loved every minute of it. Wow. What about then the gangs up there? How are they formed? You know, the gangs are it's territorial, very, very territorial. So it's postcodes. There's been a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people murdered up here for the only reason that they've got a different digit and a postcode for you have. So like, where, where we stay, it's cut up the bridges. So there was always a lot of fighting on the bridges. But we all share a common shopping centre. So on a Saturday, Saturday, it was a fucking downtown Baghdad up there. It was a yeah. bad day in Bosnia because um, you'd all the different gangs all gone to the one place and it was a, ah, it was murder. There was, was a few few boys getting badly injured up there. Don't know what it's like now, to be honest. It's, I don't really see a lot about young teams anymore, I think, because the internet and all that, they're all, um, what I saw, hold hands and be friends now, you know what I mean? Whereas when we were younger, it was every tunnel had 50, 60 people in it, a ghetto blaster, and bottles of bucky and a bag of drugs. I mean, that was, that was your youth. And who was your first love? Ah, <laughs> well, that is, um, you know, um, I, I had to tell my, my missus about it because obviously she, she had her first love as well. So we, we had a laugh about it. But the real Lassie Kelly... And um, oh, she was stunning. And she actually came on to me, and I was wow, didn't think I'd get in there, but happy days. I'll, I'll certainly snow say no. And it developed and developed, and it got serious. But you know, I, I was 16, I wanted my cake and eat it. I was totally mad with all the time, and I ended up running a bit with this behind. It took us into Cran Hill, don't get me wrong, and I had some of the best times of my life, but. It wasn't a, I really got to jail and I sobered up completely. I realised what I'd lost, you know what I mean? And you listen to this, isn't it? Um, it's a big sob story. Uh, I see her about, she got, I think she got a, a wane and a, a new man and that, and I wish her all the best now. We were a couple of wanes, puppy love, we had the folk we'd with the boys and we just loved it, but it was never, it was never going to last, you know what I mean? But I really actually called Kelly Heffernan, my first love. And what was that first offence then that sent you on remand? Uh, very first time I ever get remanded. It yeah. was car theft actually. It was um, I say car theft. Maybe mate, me, maybe mate John McMillan. The um, John used to kid on he could drive. He couldn't drive for shit. I don't know if he's got his license. I still don't know if he can drive that good. But back then it was terrible, and it was the worst winter you'd ever known. And we decided to steal a motor, and he done he's opened the driver's door and we couldn't get my door open so I climbed in I was sitting in the passenger seat and he's sitting and I'm wondering what he doing he just it was really what he was really doing was I don't want to admit that I don't know shit about stealing motors so we're messing about and then just seeing the shadow of somebody run by the back window and now no saying I could have spun my head going out the, the windies were getting put in and we were getting dragged out and we got kicked in the middle of the street I mean there was neighbours, nor that. They were knocking fuck it in the middle of the street. So they charged the two of me. It wasn't even car theft, it was reset because we didn't, we didn't even start the engine. But I got, I got a, a seven-day lie-down for that. John, for some reason, got bail. And um, that was the very first time I was in. I remember, I didn't even know how to roll, roll a roll-up. Um, nothing. And, you know, obviously, I was 16. And to say you're not intimidated is bollocks. Because you're not intimidated to go to jail. You're intimidated at the unknown. 
you, you don't know what's ahead of you. You think you're walking into the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you're like, ah, this is, where, where's in front of me? You're in prison. It's not really like that. I mean, they're not out here anyway. I don't know if they've done any time in America. Poor Abbey. Um, but but, it's, you, but I remember the boys saying, it's like, showing us how to roll, roll up and that. And then get through all the dog boxes in Berlin. Tiny wee boxes in your flat, and there's about six of you stuck in it at one time. You're all struggling to breathe. And by the time you get to the hall, you just bang head down. And then before you know it, I was back out. But but anyway, she start seeing you're in there. You're, oh, you're doubting every mistake you've made. You're not going to do this again. You're not going to do that again. You get a get. I think I'll get amnesia because soon as you're out, you forget everything. It was like the first time I've got stabbed. Um, I remember lying in a hospital and I was in the worst pain, getting stabbed in the guts as everything they told you it was going to be, believe me. It is horrible. And take us worried. take us through what happened, Paul. So what happened there was we were at a party one night and of course up above the, where the house was all kicked off. Me and my mate at the time, Neil, were walking down the stairs and we were halfway there were my wee brother, my younger brother was raised, he was only nine at the time. Um, I was about 16, 15, 16, he was nine. And this guy and his boy ran out and I shouted, come ahead, come ahead. And I had a big um, butcher knife with a big bend on it. And I pulled it out and I ran back down. And his dad was the fattest bandit you've ever seen in your life. And I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, if he gets on top of me, I'm in serious soapy. And I, I stabbed his dad and this wee wanker jumped out from behind Tim and he stabbed me in the guts and then the dad's pulled a blade out and he stabbed it and the two of them were standing there like ah as if it was a stab fed. My mate ran down, he saved my life without a shadow of a doubt. He cuddled in his he stabbed four times in the head. He actually almost lost his eye. And um, somebody had phoned the police, I don't know, but at this point all our pals had heard the commotion. And the whole place just turned into a riot. And everybody's fighting. And I was lying, looking up, and the blood, but this point was like, it was like the, the blood you see in a movie. It wasn't, it was spraying it. It was horrible. And um, I kept, could feel myself drifting away. My mates kept shaking me, kept shaking me. Come on, come on, Paul, come on, Paul, stay away. And all I could remember was coldness and the, the close, uh, the concrete underneath me. And I remember thinking to myself, I really don't want to die. I really don't want to die. And I was, I was scared because there was no two ways about it. I was on the brink of death. And for a 16-year-old, that's traumatic. That actually was trauma that I didn't realise I was carrying with me until years later. Um, and the ambulance finally came and I got rushed away. My pal got jailed. The boy done it, get jailed. My other pal get you in the freedom or get put in white suits because the host book says chances of him surviving are very slim. Um, the event, I obviously did pull through with the grace of God. And I mean, it really was the grace of God. There was no other reason why I'm sitting here today, especially no through any other stuff either. And I've got a big scar that runs right on my stomach. I've got obviously the stab wound all in my stomach. I get, I, I get 47 staples in my stomach. And another two on natural stab wound. Um, I was in a hospital for nine days in intensive care for four of them. Um, and then for the next six weeks, I was hunchbacked. 
I couldn't straighten up. I couldn't walk. My bowels didn't really move right. It was, it was a horrible experience. Complete. But, you know, Sean, I was doing that to other people as well. So I can't run about going, poor me, everybody stop and feel sorry for me. Because I was doing that and worse. And, you know, Carmel's a bitch at the end of the day. You know, catch up with you and me and everybody else. Did being so, on the receiving end of it change you in any way? I, 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 not the, the t- I did. But what I didn't realise was just how much. You know, in the hospital, I was, I was feeling fear and doubt and whatnot. And then I got out and uh, I seen all, all my pals and all that and everybody's patting you in the back and, oh, let's see your scar. And before you know it, you forget all the promises you made to yourself and you're just part of the, right back in the routine, back to it, back buzzing. I mean, um, but it was... Is years went on, that seriously started mentally affecting me. And I didn't realise until, I think, two or three years ago, I was actually suffering from PTSD. Yeah, that was also, I mean, I've been shot as well. I've been slashed, as you can see, the scars across there, multiple ones there at the back of my head. And obviously I was stabbed another time after that again. So How old? Um, when I, what time when I get shot? No, the time you got stabbed again, the next one. Well, the next one, sorry, I was uh, that was that was the last time there, so that was in '09. And what had actually happened there was, I was out with my pal, my pal just got up, and we're having a we were buzzing all day, and it was in the hot, hot sun, and we went down to the shop, and this guy he came round and started arguing with my pal, and I mean, I'm getting in a fight. <coughs> And I don't know what happened to my pal, but me and I'm getting in a fight. The boys pulled out a blade, and the first time he, yeah, he, he got his in the back of it, so I was like punching at him. What is that? What did you do there? And he, he turned me again, he turned me a couple of times, and I was like, oh, I know what he's doing. And at that point, I was starting to get woozy. I mean, he was sticking it right in, and then he, he kind of pushed his half and he bolted, and my pals helped us down, and the blood was pouring at us. So we get down to next to him where my man street was and I'm saying look don't take me to my man's because I generally thought my mother's sorry I generally thought I was going to die and the last time I didn't want my mother having a last mem- memory of her son lying dying in her arms that's not fair for any mother and what had happened is a, a pal of mine Ian had actually seen his face one day and he came running out with all sorts of towels and first aid and he'd phoned the ambulance and that I remember the police sitting remember they were sitting laughing you laugh at me all you want, but my mother was at that point. They shouldn't have done that. That was nasty. Now, uh, uh, I'd see if one of their sons had been stabbed. I wouldn't stand there laughing. I don't know the guy. None of my business. And if they want to laugh at me, then laugh at me. But don't do it when they know fine well your mother can see. You know what I mean? Because I know she did see because she actually brought it up to me. And I thought, that's, that's bad. But um, that was obviously, that was, that was the very last one. And the thing before that, no, sorry, I tell you, the slashing was the last one. There's been that much, I'm just forgetting myself here. The slashing was the very last one. The time before that was the stabbing, which was, the two of them were very close to each other. And the time before that was the shooting. And the time how before old that, you, How old were you when, when you got shot? 21. Just turned okay. 21. I was just... Okay, what, just what, what, what happened then? So what basically happened was... Um, I was running about with a couple of serious coconuts in Glasgow and uh, we were doing a lot of work for them and they were saying now, dare us, dare that, dare us, dare that. Obviously I kind of got into a lot of details of where it was, but there was, it was serious stuff 
then um, when it happened, is I'd heard the boy I was working with started bad mouthiness. He started, um, for whatever reason, I don't know, he started saying, now he's this and he's that. I think it was a lot, it was jealousy. And me and him got into a fight once, and I put a machete to his throat, and it was shaking like a leaf. I never says that, and blah, blah, blah. So okay, fair enough. And forgot about it. And then for months and months, the wee rat was piling up to us, and the whole time he knew what he was planning. And he would, uh, and we also done it, done his pull the trigger himself, he wouldn't have dared. He paid boys, um, whoever it was, he paid a lot of money. And what had happened is they invited me down. At this point, I was taking a lot of coke, a lot, a lot of coke. And you don't, you don't need to twist somebody's arm who's already full of coke to come down for more coke. You just need to say, there's the lines, come on down. And that's what they done. They knew fine well I'd have went for a outline and sinker. <coughs> Down the chapter door, and he opened the door, and the whole place was in darkness. And you know, showing that way when you get that gut feeling, and you know, you still always trust your gut 100% because I knew there was something I missed. I knew that, and I could see in his face he had a guilty look. And I've um, wondered in anyway, and one of them punched it in the side of the head, and one of them tried to stab us. But to say he tried to stab us is it's poor at best because all he done when he left a scratch across my chest. I mean, he could have easily have done it. And one of them sprayed that gas stuff in my eyes. That was horrendous. And then the, one, the other guy stepped out the hall and he pointed the gun right to my head. And I remember thinking to myself, fuck me, man, I'm going to die in a strange house in Cranhill with nobody run us. None of my pals, because all my pals are up the stairs, actually. But, um, I'm just going to ask, it's me, I'm going to be dead before I know it. And i seen him shaking, and I've never been so relieved. See that? Two, three seconds, felt like days, him pointing the gun at my head. And then i seen his horn shaking, and I thought, he's not getting the ball, he's not going to shoot me in the head anyway. And my stomach was sort of, oh my God, it was like a wake. But then he went like that, bang, and blasted his, uh, he tried to shoot his in the stomach, and shot his in the top of the leg. And I've turned around and I'm shouting, shoot him again, shoot him again, he'll come back, he'll come back. And at that point I thought, oh, fuck you, man. And I just burst at him and I managed to get the keys and I'm up to the door and I fell into the course. One of them crowned us with a hatchet right at the head. All the blood was pouring down me by that point. So I was like crumpling myself up the stairs and I'm banging on my pal's door. And my pal's opened the door and I've just fell in and I've said, I've been shot. But they've obviously seen the blood and thought I've been shot in the head. And the phone the ambulance and within seconds the armed response were everywhere. I mean they were everywhere. Everybody that was in the house were told he's only gone anywhere to search for a firearm. I was lying in the hall and I remember passing out a wee bit and I kind of get woke with a fat wanker doing out with a rifle and poking in the side of the air. Like, but you didn't have the one that's been shot. Stand like that with your fingers to be searching for a firearm. Stand like that. They're all screaming at us. I was like, all right, can't do that. But they searched us for, obviously, they gun. Carted us after the hospital. Um, the police came. What happened? Don't know, I fell. He says, you think you're funny? And I really don't care about you. I says, that's, that's my story. Really. They says, you're telling me you fell and you landed a bullet. I says, streets of Glasgow should really get cleaned up now, shouldn't they? He's like, uh, he's like, uh, he I tell you, like, everyone, can I be back tonight? You'll be telling me what happened. I said, okay. Since he bolted, told my pal, said, get up here with a motor, put my clothes on, 
right out, slipped out before under the doctor's nose and in the motors. They tracked me down about three weeks later. But at that point, they knew that nothing was going to get seized. I mean, for all the stuff that's ever happened to me, not one person has done day one in prison. And they never would, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm glad I'm away from it all now, I'm certainly not. But nobody, it was just, we weren't about that way. We were, we were told we'll wash your hands, we wash your hands, dirty laundry, you know what I mean? Honestly, Paul, I'm like gobsmacked. I've heard, interviewed a lot of people, hard-hitting stories. We've just had 30 minutes of stabbings, shootings, slashings. Yeah. You, you, you've been through so much, and you're just at a young age of what you've described so far in this story. Yeah. I'm just blown away by this because it's been constant. So look, we're going to calm it down a little bit right now before we go yep. to the prison stories. Yeah. What, what, what was your mum and dad's response and reactions as you were going through this as a teenager going into your early 20s? Oh, did, they, I, I, did they try and get you out of the lifestyle? Or were you out of control? Or what, what was going on at home? Yeah, I was completely out of control. It broke my mother's heart. Um, I remember the day I got sentenced and he stood up. Um, actually, I was known back then as Paul Allen. Um, I hate and called that name. It's my, my stepdad's name. My name is Paul Smith. I gave it to Polish years ago and it kind of stuck. So, he says, Paul Allen, I sent you to six years and you'll be back here on um, Monday morning for a fresh trial. And I've seen the look in my mum's face. She was heartbroken. But my mother also knew she, to a degree she just had to leave me to it. It was sort of like describing like how a parent eventually has to leave somebody with a kid with a drug problem. They have to eventually just say he's going to date or she's going to date whether we come down heavy or no, and it's going to kill us if it happens to him. But unfortunately, and you know, I feel a lot, a lot of guilt for that these days, a lot of guilt. Um, I, I didn't realise just how much stress I was putting my parents under. And it was, it was, it was bad, you know what I mean? It really was. Yeah, and that's what we tell the young people who watch these videos. You know, these gang members, they might say they've got your back, but your parents will have your back. Oh, I know. Lots of times when people go to prison, the gang members are trying to sleep with the girlfriends and they're not helping them. And it's exactly all falls back on the parents. That's exactly what I tell. I was, um, any young man I'm ever speaking to, I say that. You, you might be the, the big cock of the walk now, but see the setting you're in the jail. Your best pal's going to be getting right into your wee missus. And by the time you come out, because they all turn their back on you, nobody's going to want to know you. Because that's what does happen, especially with a long term sentence. Right, so let's go into the prison years now. And we'll, we'll we'll just go back to when you said you was a young person going for the first time. Yeah, and you, you know you thought it was going to be like Shawshank and all that kind of stuff. I think it was Bellini you said. That was yeah. Did, did, did you know people in there? Were you okay because of your associations from the streets? You know, when I first went in, didn't know a soul, but I was lucky. I get dubbed up by a wee guy called Harry McAllister, and I don't even know if he's still alive or not to this day, but. We had a, it was already a bit seasoned by that point, and you know, he kind of showed us the ropes and what. No, it could have been an arsehole, but it was, he was a good boy. And I was, I was pal with Harry for years after that. Um, it was maybe the second time I was in that um, I started getting to know faces, and then by, by the time I was on the man for the, the big one, I was seasoned basically myself. I mean, I, 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 I was in my pals for Cumberland, 
but also you also knew boys say this part of Glasgow, that part of Glasgow, all over the place because you'd been in and out with them. Um, because at that point, Berlin was the only place in the west of Scotland that took young offenders on remand. So if you were at that age and you were remanded, you went to Berlin. Regardless of, there was people for peoples, which is, I don't even know where that is, it's a long way away for you. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free-from-baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. These Syrian pumpkin seeds from Koro are amazing. I have them on my cheese and toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. There's quite a lot. Quite a lot of Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Um, and Berlini. It was, it was a bit unfair for the band to fall away, but you'll, you'll go to know each other. Um, and then obviously, by the, by the time I'd been on for the big one, then I, I was already part of, the, part of the foundation myself. Yeah, Johnny Boy Steele gave us a tour around Bellini and showed us where he'd escaped from and everything. So you said that there was, you know, certain faces. Who, you know, when you're a young person, you're going in the system, you hear about, you know, the biggest time gangsters. Who, who were the big names back then? Oh, without a doubt, Paul Ferris. I mean, there's, uh, Paul Ferris was the, the top top one. You had Blake McDonald. You had um, Jane Bird McLean, who I knew personally. Jane was a good guy. Um, you had... Got your McGovern's and all that. You, you had all your, your, your real villains at that point, but Paul Ferris always stood out down there, as I say, there wasn't, there wasn't any of us that didn't know the name. There's still to this day, you still hear his name being whispered in pubs. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's an old man now, isn't he? I'm not saying it's bad about him, but um, he is an older man now, but he still, he still holds that sort of charisma and fear up here. So I, that, that was the sort of names that we all held. And you seen all them with the paper. you seen them with the nice cars. And to be honest, you've seen the, their names in the paper and all that as well. And you wanted to be that. I mean, why, if you're a person for anywhere, why not be somebody for somewhere? But it doesn't always yeah. work out like that. It certainly didn't work out like that for me. Yeah, Paul Ferris is an absolute gentleman. All all the comments on the podcast we've, we've done with him has been nothing but love and respect. Yeah, I could imagine it would be. All right, so you going in then, Paul, as a young person. Yeah. What what were the conditions like back then? How many people were in a cell? What was the food like? It was two in a cell. It was actually we were in D D Hall, which was the only hall that had been modernised. But C Hall through E Hall was all still your piss pots and your your bare walls. We had electricity and toilets and sinks. Not that bad compared to the way they were living. I mean, they were like. They were bad then, that holes. We didn't experience that until we actually went up to Pullman, because Pullman was still behind. 
um, had he been hurt, modernised. So, you know, we didn't really that bad in Berlin. But when you went up to Pullman, you were piss pots and four walls and the lights were at 11 o'clock and you were a wee radio with a battery and everybody was trying to wire their radios up to the light and blowing the light, electricity in the hall all the time. So that, that, was, that was pretty rough. That was that was real experience. Before you're, you're sitting there going, oh my God, this is, this is real time now. Going in for the first time, what was your first confrontation? First confrontation? Um, you know, it was actually a guy who was trying to get wideways, and as I say, Harry had jumped right in straight away, and he was like, ah, oh, fucking, he pulls all right. As I, I was tiny back then, and he, he pulls all right, and it wasn't really much of a confrontation, it never went anywhere. Um, but, you know, fights were always right, right around the corner. The first real thing I got into was the boy that had stabbed us when I was, I, I'd been reminded he was on the man for something else. And oh, so you run into uh, him later. Ran into him, uh, right. And when I mean ran into him, we physically almost bumped into each other. We didn't know, he, I'd just been reminded, I didn't know he was up there. And he brought in, and as I said, uh, so it was like two levels, then a ceiling, two levels and a ceiling, instead of the big four level holes. Uh, so we dehung Berlinius. So you went in, and there he was on the phone. And I thought, jackpot. And he'd actually, at this point, turned Queens against my wee pal Chris. And uh, Chris get eight year, I think, for attacking him. So he'd, he'd stood up in the high court against him at this point. And there he is, swaggering about the hall as if he's Jack the Lad. And I had a couple of pals in there for Grand Hall. And I'd say to him, he's just fucking snitch. Blah, blah, blah. So the next day in the shower... I, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't say exactly who done it, but somebody slashed him there to the arm, there to the arm. You know, these things happen, don't they? Paul, you've described so many stabbings earlier. Which stabbing had this guy done on you? This was the one, the very first one, the one in the stomach oh. with him and his dad. Him and his dad, the very, very first one. And it's still to this one, the one that really carries weight with me. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because it's the first time. Um, but that's where the, the trauma eventually came through later on. But, um, did, you into, did you ever run into the guy who did the one down your face? No, never. My, my missus seen him. My missus phoned me once and I was in the kitchen. I was at work. And uh, she's like, oh, I can see that guy, blah, blah, blah. He's right beside us, basically. I'm going to say something. I said, don't. I said, that's an animal. That, that. I said, he would probably date to you. I said, just don't do that. I said, stay away from him. You know, uh, you hear stories that he's about, and he's no fear here anyway, but you hear stories that about, and you hear his stories of he's back in the jail, and he's heard even stories that he's dead. I really don't get that much thought as much as I used to, because you have to let all that go. You need to let it go, otherwise it will eat your life. That's a very important point right there. Resentment and anger and revenge. It, it can just eat you alive, can't it, when you can be, you should be concentrating on more positive things. Exactly. All right, exactly. so we're still we're still back. You know, you're, you're a young person in Barlini then, and what was the other con- the rest of the conditions like? You know, having a shower, things like that. The guards, brutality. Well, this, well, this, this, the guard, the screws hated me, hated me, and I, um, I, I, I didn't realize my co- my co- accused the boy that we got a trial with my pal, but my, we got a trial. Had dabs a screw in Barlini. And they all blamed me 
Even though Gibby was the one that stabbed the boy, they all blamed what, me. The what was that over? What was it over? The, why Gibby stabbed him? Yeah. Um, but what happened is <clears throat> we were involved with this boy moving a lot of stuff from and uh, the boy was just, he was arrogant and he was he was always having something to say and he basically he told my mother and my stepfather what I was up to and they cracked up obviously and I swore to them that I wouldn't do it again and then a couple of weeks later he told them again that I was still doing it, I was still moving all this stuff from him so I just went enough's enough and I phoned him and me and my pal, he got in the car and my pal got in behind him and stabbed him in the chest. I, I stabbed him a couple of times in the stomach. And uh, we, we just left him basically die in the car. And um, I mean, I'm not proud of that. I'm not I'm no justifying it in any way. But back then, when you're young, you're, you're full of anger. You can justify a lot of things a lot easier. If it was new, I would have just went, oh, leave him to it. Who cares? But back then, uh, it was it was all provado again. It was all no. I need to. He smeared my name. I need to. I need to nap him. I do him. And and that's what happened. And he he almost died. I mean, we 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 didn't miss him. As I says, we got twelve dollars. We we charged with attempted murder for that. And Gibby's da was a screwing a hole in Berlin. And Gibby was out in bail. But his da was obviously telling all his pals, "Aye, it's him." He's got my, my boy into all this trouble. So as you can imagine, they, they hated me with a passion. But for whatever reason, you know what I mean? They, they probably hated this for my attitude, but I don't mind you. I was uh, always the right bad attitude I was authority. How long was that first sentence you served? Uh, the first begging. The, the, first, the very first sentence, the Bellini one. Oh, the very first one. It was, oh, it was only a four-month sentence. It was, um, it was just a four-month four sentence. Um, it was kind of just earned on me in two months. But by that point, by the time I was even sentenced for that, I was, I was fully committed. What it happened is I turned 16 in November at 01, and then um, by that point I'd been running about in Cranhill for probably about a year. And by March at 01, I was remanded for the big one. And in that time... That, that was a pending charge that had just come up. But because I was already on the man, there was nothing else he could do but a prison sentence. So they just packed his off to Pullman for two months and then back down to Berlin for another seven months in my land. All right, let's go through them slowly then. So the first sentence was four months. Yep. What was the next stint you did and what was it, the conviction? Well, the next one was um, the high court. Um, I, I, in between that, sort of, I got 60 days for what I can't even write, a breach of the peace or something, but just ran concurrent with the four months. But then I went to the high court, I'd been on the man for seven and a half months. It was murder, there was nothing worse than sitting on the man every day, wondering what's going to happen. Um, and then we finally got to Glasgow High, and we'd been charged with attempted murder, um, serious assault to permanent disfigurement. Permit and permit, endangerment of life, times two. So that was, they had two longer words for attempted murder, basically. So you're talking three attempted murders almost. Um, assault and robbery, armed robbery, and I was swear down to God Almighty. I done the rest of the charges. I really did, but I never robbed that shop. The boy who did that actually went on to rape a wee lassie. Um, 
Aye, so the police have done their job right. He wouldn't have even been eligible for parole. And he got out parole raped a wee last year. He's like sentenced to it just now. Um, but I swear, I will swear on any stack of Bibles. I'd, I'd done every other charge, but I did not rob that shop. And I get convicted there and get four years for a, a crime I never done. Um, did it go to trial? Well, what had happened is we, the, the QCs all came down, the Queen's Council, and they basically says to everybody, well, whatever Paul gets, half half it, and that's your sentence. Paul's going away and ain't coming back. And Matthew C says to us, he says, um, you know, I've got to be honest with you, Paul, I don't think you realise how much trouble you're in. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe four year tops. And he turns around and he says, uh, you're looking at 15 years. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm only 16 myself. And um, uh, so they, they says, look, they're offering a deal. And we suggest you don't take it. And he says, because it's the only way, Paul, that you can get out of this with it really doing serious, serious thing. So we'd all played to, to what they done is they, there was six, 16 odd charges and indictment and what they done is they broke game up between four years. So but the I say to them I'm not pleading guilty to this um, I'm not pleading guilty to this um, robbery. I had nothing to do with it. I'm taking that to trial. So they, they basically says Mr Gibb stand up Says uh, Craig Gibb, you've been <coughs> out in bail. You've not committed any offences. This was your first offence, and basically we can see that you're a part of the community. That being said, if you think you're walking out of here today with anything but a custodial sentence, you're sadly wrong. Four years, and I'm sitting like that beside him. I'm going, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to. just going to turn around and send me to the guillotine here. And um, he says, Mister. Um, Mr. Smith, you're 16 years old. You're younger than anybody. And you're younger than anybody, and you've got the most severe charges out of everybody. And if you think for a second that you're going to be looked at favourably because your age, you're sadly mistaken. He says, my only regret is I wanted to give sentence you at least 12 years today. He says, but because you've got a separate trial starting on Monday, I cannot. But for sentencing guidelines, sentence you any more than I'm giving you just now. He says, I sentence you to six years and I'm going to be recommending the parole board deny you your parole because I feel you should serve every day. Okay, fair enough. But that's it. Um, he says, and obviously you'll be back here on Monday morning for your, your, your trial, your fresh trial to start. The other one get two year and the other one get seven year. My mate And what happened is I went on trial. And uh, there was, honestly, Sean, there was nothing, nothing. In, for one, the guy was a big, tall, skinny guy with black hair. This was the description that the showkeeper gave. With a scar. Now, I know I've got scars here, but at the time, I never, I closed his nose. No scar and a funny walk. My, my QC even had me walking about the, the dock to show. And the jury still returned a guilty verdict. Couldn't believe it. So, even, I, even the judge was surprised with the evidence. And he sent me to four years concurrent. And I was so happy. And then obviously that was if 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 I was gonna write a book, which I'm planning today, that chapter would definitely be called The Party's Over because that was the very that was the end of the madness to a degree, then it was a prison time, then it was coming home. What was it like going into prison that time? 
you know, we'd already been on the man for seven months at that point, so we were, we were already used to it. See, in a lot of ways, I've got to be honest, a lot of ways I was kind of happy because I was, I was heading for a concrete box or a wooden one. I was near two ways about it. I was going to murder somebody or somebody was going to murder me. There was so much chaos. I was involved in so much chaos in Cumberland and Glasgow. I was just running right everywhere. You know, if it gets to a point where you just want to go, I can't believe anymore. I just, I need, and so when we shut the door and I knew that, or in madness, at least then that part of my life was over. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say happy because I wasn't happy, but I would definitely say I was relieved. It's like when people are on the run sometimes and then they finally get arrested and there's like a sense exactly. of, of comfort, isn't it? That, that not exactly. over the shoulder anymore. Yeah, and that's a perfect example. That's exactly what it was like. What was your routine in prison at this point? You know, routine is, uh, I, I despise prison for us because to, to this day, I still wake up at 6 to 6 a.m. Regardless, I can come in for work at 11, 12, and I'll still wake up at 6. And that was drummed into us through that. You would hear the keys about half 6 to half 6. Soon you heard the keys, your eyes would open. Then the doors would open about 10 past 7. You'd get your dry rice, your rice krispies, and your wee pint of milk. And then they would... Um, People, there was courts, liberation, and they would, uh, it was funny, see, when you were in Berlin, we used to call it the Green Mile, everybody gone for a methadone, and they would shout up, oh, methadone, and you would just see rows and rows and rows of people, and the whole hall would clear, so then, um, as soon as they got all that dealt with, then um, you were locked back up, and, you know, then the sheds, you were took down to the sheds, which is the work placement, and, um, you would sit about doing nothing down there already. It was boring. Yeah. Uh, all right, if you were in the cuckoo's, I, I went into the cuckoo's relatively early. But then uh, it wasn't long before I was getting into chaos. Actually, I always remember it was when I first went into Pullman, sentenced. I was in a Dilbolston. I was in a day night, I was talking to my pal. And I screwed up the door. He's like, oh, you ain't got a fucking gangster, don't you? I was like, oh, no, he taught me. And then the two pals came here and I write my face like that. And, you know, it's intimidating. But I think for that, because, see, the screws in built in Pullman encouraged doing, they encouraged it, encouraged people to divide into separate cliques because it made their life easier. If everybody's a girl, they'll wear their enemies in. Um, and Pullman was bad for that. It. Really, it was only jail that was really bad for it. And I think that was where all the resentment towards the screws came from. And, you know, I battled them for years. I mean, there was a people a lot worse than me without a doubt, but I had a lot of fun times, I know, I can't, I can't say it was all, because there was some, there was something funny about uh, they would all come in with a full ride gear and uh, after you took to the seg unit and stripped and knocked about, you were just lying there. It was adrenaline, I think, would make you giggle, you know what I mean? Can you remember the first time they came in like that on you and what you'd done to cause it? First time I remember it all too well, and I'd done nothing. What had happened was um, we were put in a it was a, a hall called Alley Cali. Uh, um, why it was and that's the name of some place in Scotland, apparently. But anyway, um, boy next door to me had smashed his Peter up in his cell, and they've came to the rang door and. I was sitting on my seat, mind my own business, reading about the door flew open, shield in, bang. 
the only grin until they realised that um, in fact my Peter was fine and then they just got up out, and right into the other guy who was smashing up. It was the very first time. Um, that was just a, a mistake in their half bar, but God almighty knocked the wind right at me. It was like a freight train coming at you. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get a chance to see you get an iron door, mate, before you know you're pinned up against the wall and can't breathe. So, and then obviously they're full helmets and they've, got a lot, they've, they've always got to make a show and dance here. They, they hit the, the shield, the, 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 the bat and all that to make noise. It's all, it's all just a, a way of, they're probably trained to do that, I'd imagine, because they didn't have the jewel. What was the next time they came in? The next time they came in, I actually was smashing up. Um, the screws were moving in nothing, and they were, they were horrible. They were the animals, and um, I just did enough of it, and I just I smashed myself up, and they came charging in, and I thought, this time I'll run it in. Didn't make any difference, believe me. <laughs> I, I just, it was just like, up, and that was, that was it, I'm done me. Um, and plus, you got a couple of slaps for that, I know. Dragged it in the you know. Um, time after that, time after that, actually, was, what had happened was, a boy got slashed, and I was just brushing my teeth beside the boy. And he didn't actually, like, they came with a gear on, but he didn't put charges around. And he just took me, my, my, the boy I was dubbed up with, and the two other boys, because it was about six years, and then one he's obviously done it. It was a bit like playing Cuddle. Now, somebody done it, um, nobody's seen it, and the boy was lying slashed. Obviously, you know, he done it. And we all got took down to the you know, but you know, the whole thing just kind of went away. The, the boy never says it, and, and that was it. That used to happen all the time in Pullman. Somebody would get slashed, nobody seen it, and, and you heard nothing. It was like, there was a big investigation for about 10 minutes. Never met screws so lazy in your life as they were up there. You can even be bothered. They just pick you up, take you to sick pain, take you to shut up. If, you might have press charges, they'll, they'll have to do something, but if no, they're happy to get back to sitting in a fat arse. How many times did the goon squad come in on you? Yeah, the years. Oh, God, a few times, believe me. Um, the worst one was up in shot, so made um, Roderick Hooch, homemade alcohol. Oh, my God. I'll tell you, so I'll never ever see. If you see somebody even drinking that, walking out of weight, it's horrible. It's, the hangover is. You actually get a hangover when you're still drunk. It's kind of weird that stuff. You're out and you just can't make it, right? But when I was tanning it, and somebody came up with the idea, let's put your telly through the office window. Yeah. I mean, they're all young, all blazing, hitting oh, that's a great idea, that's my good laugh. Picked the telly up, way down a fucking right through the office window, but I'd just seen him play backies in court, and I was no denying, you know, the cameras were spot on, who done it, and it was obviously me. Um, and no, we all ran back in, it was three years, me, boy Tony and our boy Alan, and um, we barricaded the door, not fucking the door. We're in the back. We're all young and stupid. And we're singing. You keep on knocking, but you can't come in. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, they took the hinges off. They didn't find that very funny. What a beating they gave us. All right, I'm gonna flex that. And uh, you know, I've got a bad back to this day. The two of them are holding the thing with a shield in both ends, and the other one was battering into my back. And I'm sure you're gonna cripple me, animal. I'm sure who does that? F in hell. Um, my mate, his eyes split wide open there. My mate got two broken fingers. The guy, that was a savage beating he gave us. Um, but, you know, as it is, it was, it was still worth it to even sing that song I wanted them because they were raging. They were, 
Look <laughs> fucking tell you who we'll get in there and we'll see him with Ross Damon in the background just, uh, singing I think we're funny. And then of, of course they took a news off the door. Just came in. Was that was, was that the worst was that the worst injury you ever got from the guards? I would say so, I I would say so. I mean the rest of it was probably just but Lenny one time um a screw booted his in the heat while I was getting carted. I don't know who done it, but I was about and it wasn't even all that. It was just made a, a swipe side kick. It wasn't a full penalty kick. Well, I, I was turkeyed up at that point, so you could have easily have done it. Um, but I think that was probably the worst one was up in shots, definitely. Did you see any snitches or sex offenders get dealt with? Uh, no, the sex offenders were... Well, one time in Pullman, and I, you know, it's my, it's my all-time regret, because I truly believe the wee guy's innocent. Luke Mitchell, uh, if you've heard the who that is, I truly yeah, believe... Yeah, we've, we've, had, we've had people on the podcast about Luke Mitchell. We think he's innocent as well. Well, when he first got brought into Pullman, we were there, obviously, in 2003, and he used to get took about with four screws. And, you know, he looked the part, he had the long hair, the kind of evil look about him. Who, to judge somebody is terrible, but when you're young, you're reading in the papers, you're thinking, what this animal done? And I spat, I spat on him one day, it, it used to be the mail recalled it, and all the halls and pole that were connected onto this big long corridor, and it took me to the visit room, and he was going to the visit, and we were coming at a PT, and I spat on him, and I swear to God, if I could ever see that boy, I would I would genuinely try and apologise, because that's, I've carried that guilt for years, and see the mayor, you see about that boy now, there's no two ways about it. Three or three or it, Mitchell. Yeah, and he's still inside. It's really sad, isn't it? It's very sad. Very sad. You know, I think what? Well, so you said so. We did a four months, and then we did a few more months, and now you got a four four year one. But by, by the mm. end of this four year one, what where was your mind at, and how old were you? Well, it was well, it was six years. I served four years out here. Yeah. Um, I was twenty one when I got. 16 when I made 21 when I got out and uh, just turning 21 but you know my mind was still on the streets it was it was still I was too young it was still what to make a name and that's how I ended up back inside within two months I'd been caught by a lot back uh, and then when it happened with four years of possession of a knife I thought no way I'm not enough with this but you know it was in that time and when I was out I'd been shot uh, hit with a hatchet Spread with CS gas. I mean, granted, that happened in one night, but still, um, I'd get into some serious stuff and all. I mean, that's your guy. I was only out. I was, I'd actually went, done something to somebody and went to see my pro officer later that day. So I deserved to be back in prison. I was fucking a wee animal still. How did they catch you that time? Well, that's what happened is I was doing seeing this wee bird, um, and we were walking along and the police had walked past us and she's like, oh, I've got um, something on it. She's like, I've got a coat in her pocket. She went, I'm going to go this way. And that, what had happened is the police had seen me and buckled back round. The, the path kind of went round the way. You could come back. And then there was more police. I was walking down the hall and I seen them come towards us. I've waited to turn to run and there was two police behind us. I was nowhere I could really go. I came out and I was like, how are you doing? Searched us from the lot back. Uh, what's your name? I says, Alan Patterson. I says, uh, where do you say Alan? I said, 239 Bell Rock Street. Um, I hope the 239 Bell Rock Street didn't even exist. It was, it was knocked down. It used to be an old street in Tranel. 
and clearly I'm no Alan Parson. So they took it out the police station that kept saying it. What's your name again? She says, Alan Parson. Says, Do you want to spell it? I said, You take the piss. He says, Right, okay. Charlie booked us in under Alan Parson. He says, You any previous conviction? No, never. You know, I used to use this wee guy's name. I hated him growing up. And the wee guy's probably been 60 years for a minute of time I've used his name. <laughs> I hope he's not, but. Um, and uh, they put us in a post and they're like, Listen, you've no previous conviction. You've probably been in a couple of years. And I'm like, Yes, jackpot. And then a half later, I opened the door. I'm like, How you doing, Paul? He told me, Paul, like, you still try to tell us your name's Alan Parson. I says, I says, come here. Take us into Charles' desk, break him pure. He says, you think Paul Smith looks a fucking double Alan Parson? Hey, Alan Parson looks a double Paul Smith. I says, shut up, man, just take it back. He says, I'm getting charged with perverting the course of justice as well. I says, right, okay. And then straight away, the man did again. And what had actually happened was when the parole board up here's a joke. They had sent my man, they phoned my man, but pure angry tone, like that. Tell your son we've applied for a warrant for his arrest because he's not been to see us in months. My mum was like, Are you taking the Mickey? My son's been in prison for the last four months. Or nobody told us. So the pro, your pro officer didn't even know that I was back in prison, that I'd been recalled. And that's what happened. <coughs> I get 40, 42 months consent with nine months that I had left in my recall. It was a, a, it was terrible, the sentence. And I'd served two nights, just under two years of that. So, oh, and seven and a half years, I just, when I got out that time, my uncle, my uncle Vinnie picked us up, and, you know, everybody laughed, and I said, I'm going straight, aye, 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 so yeah. I said, look, Vinnie, I said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be in crime anywhere, I, I don't want involved in it anywhere, I want to just have a peaceful life, and start getting into chefing. He said, right, okay, I believe you. And, you know, I proved them all wrong, and I proved myself right. So how old were you when you got out from that one? 24. And what happened during that one? Um, well, during that one, it was, again, the worst fight I've ever been in. A guy called Brian. What? Um, I, when I was inside, again, the worst fight that I'd ever been in with a guy called Brian. And, I mean, this guy was a monster. And the two were fighting, and the screws had locked us in the cell. And I, I, I was stabbed on the heat of a coffee cup. Hold, 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 hold on a sec. Hold on, let's set the scene for this one, Paul. Okay. What, what, you said he was a monster. What did he look like? And what was the beef over first? Right, so what basically happened, the beef is over. <laughs> Again, which maybe, maybe I shouldn't have drank it, but last time it was, um, we were drinking hooch and a screws came out and he, an argument. It was me actually caused the argument and I, I Turning and I nutted the screw, and Big Brian's came out and the two of us battered the screw, and we get flung into his cell, the door get locked. And he, the men, because we were drunk, we started arguing with each other, and then he's just fucking turning and he'd horns like birds, he, he was like that, he was, and he, I was a sweet skinny guy, and he got in tapping and he's strangling his, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not fucking gonna die here, you know what I mean? And I'm, I smashed him in a coffee cup, in a coffee jar, and he smashed him, stabbed him in the heat and he stopped, just was strangling tight on tight. I thought, this is serious. And I don't know what happened, but my tongue got hoffed into. Uh, I get, yeah, I get 14 stitches. My tongue was thin, and the blood was pouring out. It was disgusting. And boy, Graham Lennox ended up running down the screen and said, listen, they're going to kill each other in there. You better get that door opened. 
and eventually that they came in and they carted him to the SEG unit and they carted me to the medical unit and then I was trying to fight when I'm doing there until I was still a bit drunk and then I took it to Cross, Cross Hill Hospital it's Crosswood Hospital or whatever it's called it's in Kilmarnock anyway and they had to sew my tongue and all that back up and uh, they took us that was that we, we were in the SEG unit and Brian got moved to Shorts and I, I was down there for Graham got back up the hall and I was down there for about four months and then back up and then I get in there and I roll occasionally I screw. I was only up I hated that jail. I hated everything about it. As I say, they didn't, they, they weren't like the SPS. They were a bunch of morons for the lack of a better word. They used to work in the Tesco and all that and simply they're working with dangerous criminals and it's, it just should have never happened. It was badly planned and actually it's starting to catch on because we knew we've got this Adiwell jail up here, which I've never been in, but when you read the papers, that's just as bad. And I wanted to do it there, and I was wanting to do it. And start, no jail in Scotland was taking us at this point, they were all up. We've had enough of them, we've had them. Shots was saying it, Kamala was well, Greenock had already been in, they'd been kicked out of Greenock by Linney, and obviously I was too young, too old for Pullman. And there was a boy that I was beefing me in uh, Glen Oco, he'd actually civvy Charles, me and my pal, Charles was us out, so we couldn't go there. And uh, eventually they were stuck with us, but I was up the hall for. I was up my hall for about a week and I ended up getting in an argument with another screw and carted back down and that was that. I just I finished my sentence in the SEG unit. I got, I'd been in the SEG unit for eight months and they just opened the door and said, see you later. That was that. Which was quite what hard. Was like in, what was it like in the SEG? You know, SEG units, everything it says in the tin, you're, you're in there. And, I mean, SEG units used to be, where it used to be is, used to just be like, a police station, if you've ever been in a police station, you've got the met the concrete step where your bed, your mattress would go, and four was. I mean, only difference in your metal toilet and your metal sink. Nowadays, they've put actual high beds in it, and you've got electricity. I mean, nowadays, Segun is, you can get a telly if you're good enough in the seg for three weeks. But then it used to be, I used to be doing there, and, you know, you used to talk to yourself and all that, because loneliness is, loneliness can really get on top of you. And the human body, the human brain's not developed to cope with the loneliness that you feel in a segregation unit. And it's the nature of saying that quiet, uh, the quietness is deafening. Silence is deafening, or whatever it may be. What was your routine in the seg? Up in the morning, jogging the spot, we better um, press ups, whatever. If you were, hopefully, you had a good book. Crack into a good book, um, then you would, you were entitled to one shower a day, you know, one hour of exercise. But you remember your exercises, they, they are the boys, they open the door, they handcuff you, they take you around into a pen yourself, just like, a, like an animal, you know what I mean? And I'm cuff you, and, uh, and then that would be, you know, that was, and you would walk anti clockwise. Every jail, especially in Britain, everybody walks that way, and I don't know why. And it's always bugged me that I used to remember sitting in exercise here looking at boys saying, why do you have, why is every jail do that? And part of the day down, down south as well. So you ever get somebody that can answer that, please give us a text. Because that drives me nuts, that question, to this day. That was really, um, during your prison years then, did you come across any really high profile cases like killers or anything like that? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. There was, like, 
And I was up in shots. Was, it, was, it was like, oh, lady killers were on for doing a race. And, you know, sometimes I feel choke my own missus, but I don't know if I would go as far as killing them. I mean, mm. these were all, there was a guy, Doogie, and he was totally, totally off, off his rocker. And he was next door to me. And uh, what he'd actually done me, he killed his wife. And he, was, he had her at a dinner table every day and he was shouting at her because she wasn't eating her dinner. The poor woman sat there and did for five days. So he was doing all his sentence. He was, and I remember playing my music one day and it was on the door. And I've opened the stunner, turn that fucking music down. They bother me. I don't go turn it on again, to be honest with you. Um, Shots had some, some right scary people and some, but you know, had some real villains up there and all. It was a boy for me, Essex. And the stories he told you about the drug scene was just, it was, well, these are, like, wow, you honestly live that life, mate? He says, honestly, he says, but you know, he says, like you, you have not got a potty person. So, were you, in your in your head then, how were you adjusting for getting released on this stretch? You know, it was, um, it's funny, the first time I was getting released, started doubting I even wanted to get out, the closer it was getting, and I used to think, I was weird, like, where the hell would they want to get out? But see, you speak to a lot of long-termers, a lot of them will say that, because it's the fear. Your world's that small, has been for years, and with a one-step out of the fence, it turns into the world we're staying in now, where you've got bills, um, kids, and all the, the fun joys about what well, well. So, you know, it was the first time was really scary, uh, and even the second time, I'd still... Dead edging and people couldn't they feel comfortable when I when I go out. Didn't trust a lot of people, and again I saw all oh, things come for certain long term sentences. It does psychologically mess with you. And then when you got released on this one, was there anyone waiting for you? Uh, well, that one was that was my uncle was waiting for his money. My mother and that was up, and uh, I actually met my missus the first night I got out. Um, oh wow. I honest to God, it was where that actually happened is my pal, no, I knew who she was and all, but I didn't know that. Um, we were in the pub and she came down, says, you want me to buy you a drink? She's like, I can buy my own drink. <laughs> buy your own drink, you just stuck up bitch with it. I can't know what I mean, offer. And, uh, you know, a couple of drinks later, we got talking and that and, uh, we exchanged the numbers and get a wee kiss off of that night and that nailed just a wee kiss and, and then it went for there and that's to this day I've got two kids with her um, oh congratulations man thank you very much we're very happy you know I mean? she was a lot a lot to do with me changing my life a lot. I mean I was planning and changing anyway but she helped through the tough times um, so you'd say helped. the power the power of the love of a good woman who helped you settle down exactly exactly you know what I mean so that's, that's it must be. It must work in mysterious ways because it can work. Were there any temptations when you got out? Where you almost went back to it? Oh, I definitely. Um, especially when that happened. That happened. I really, really. Um, I mean, that when I that happened was an argument broke out, and the guys got out of a bottle. And he's, he thought, I happened with a bottle. I never happened with a bottle. He's put a Stanley out. And um, he's, he's like, oh, I am going to take the face off you. And he's came out and I punched him in his ass. But, you know, when I came out, I was 
built. I was all pulled in, but I was strong. Punched him right in his arse. And, but he was like a jelly, said, Tamazapam. So he was like, they wibble wobble things. You, if you can remember the wings. So he just came down, he came right back up. But you're taking the piss. Punched him in his arse again. And uh, this time he tried to get up and I booted on the side. I said, stay doing your prick. And just as that, He's bird walked in there, I knew he's bird to grand home. She really, this is a lassie who really did stab people, especially guys with bunkers. And Stacey, my missus, was stunning. And she shouted, he shouted, effing stab back out. And I spurred around and I said, you'll stab nobody. As soon as that's happened, he's jumped up, he's pulled the Stanley out. He caught me for that there. That was, that was a husband, done that, but he caught me for that there in a straight line. And I, I wasn't sure, but I, I said, what did you do you there? He caught me for there, run through here. And run. I said, right, we're on. I mean, Tapio, he caught me, the one in the back of the head, three in the back of the head, and I'm strangling him, I'm strangling the life of him, and the blood was pouring at him, and I knew deep down that that was no paper cut, I mean, and what was happening was, my, my grip on him was starting to get looser and looser, and it was starting to get woozier and woozier, and uh, just as that, the police must have appeared, and I've, I've heard them I said get, get away before they come hurry up the police came and they were like what happened to you he says usual I fell he says your cheek's on your shoulder take it or leave it I says that is. Um, at this point I'm not really grasping just how much bad this was and um, my missus happened to show us it and I'm like oh, Jesus Christ man and uh, I, I was, I was imagining that. that. That thing made me mentally because even to this day, you still see people looking and all that. And usually for myself, I don't bother my arse, but when I'm with my kids, they, you know, it's not right, Sean. Their kids, they shouldn't you know about that. And they, in fact, they actually asked what happened and I told them I was in a car crash and I never wore my seatbelt. So I always remember my seatbelt and I tell the pals that as well. So I hope, you know, let the message get through with them and wear their seatbelt all the time. Were there any other situations after you got out that got out of control? No, I mean, there was a couple of things people tried to pull you back into it and all that, but, you know, you've just got to, you've got to, have, a of, you've got to have a backbone and just say, well, I'm not interested. I've done my thing. Whoever I use when I, I was in, you've not seen this. You've got to care. Don't start giving it a big I am now. I mean, but, you know, after a while, people start to forget about you and they move on to the next one. They can parasite on you and... Even the police, when I first got out, they were all over hell. We had a shopping centre, starfish, searching us, making it pure, widely known, they were searching us for a knife, and they were like, just get a grip, know what I mean? After a while, they, they get bored of it and all. They're, they're a business at the end of the day. They, they've got to justify why they keep picking on the one person. If they've got any reason to justify it, they've got to move on. And I've, no, I've never given them a reason ever since I came in. So they just moved on and... Um, obviously, then I get into chefing. So I was in the kitchen all the time, anyway. How old were you when you got into chefing? Um, I got out and I was skint. Didn't have a job. My stepdad got into the building trade. So I'd done five years in the building trade. So that took us up to 20, 20, 20, 29. Done five years at Mother Homes. Just a labourer. But, you know, it was good. And I, I went to my work every day. And I paid at the end of the week now and you go to learn how to associate like a real guy or like a real worker and we want to and you you'd listen to them on the banter and building trades is, is tremendous. Now you there's so many funny people in the world and you've just got to learn to take a joke on that, which was good for me because you, I came out with a 
chipped my shoulder the side of the rock of Gibraltar. And um, good that people, they taught us that they were only having a laugh, they were only taking the piss, they were taking the piss, but they were only taking the piss at you, whereas and before that you would get the back up and all that, and what you're saying, but you now you just learn to laugh at it, and that helped us in the kitchen, you know, and after five years I, I went to college, um, done, but I was starting to get a bit older so at this point, so what the tutor would say, they said, you're better off getting into the kitchen as well as college, so what I was getting, <coughs> I was getting up in the morning, it's, my missus was in college as well, same college, she was doing hairdressing, and the two kids were in the nursery of the college, so we were getting up at seven, getting them ready, taking them to the nursery, I was going to class, she was going to class, and then right after class, I was going right in the bus, right in the Glasgow, right into the hotel, and then there uh, 10, 11 at night, and it was just day after day after day, but you know, it mulls you, and you soon pick up, if you were a disaster, and then you get a wee bit better, and some people still watch us and go, you're still a fucking disaster, but you know, that's alright, that's, that's fair enough, but um, Kitchens were great, kitchens. Some of the funniest times I think I've ever had. Um, or the, the madness with the boozing and all that. I mean, there's a reason that all chefs are mad alkies and you're all just hardcore drinkers. You're in that kitchen all day. You're coming out, you go straight to the boozers. But we were having beet boozing all that in the kitchen, walk-in fridge. If you went in, we had the ovens were never used. You opened them, there was bottles of whiskey and cases of Stella and all that. And you'd just sit half a day getting blazing. It was fantastic. Time service game. You're all like, oh, you do it. No, you do it. <laughs> do you think, you know, when you, it sounds like that some of the violence was associated with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. How, how have you managed to get away from that then? Because if you're getting blitzed, aren't you at risk of doing something? Well, you know, it was uh, everything has to come to an end. And even all the fun times in the kitchen and all that, I was starting to get to the point I was coming in drunk every night and hung over every day. And I just thought, nah, enough's enough. And I started having to look at why I was drinking and why I, why I was doing everything. And then I'd wait to see a psychologist um, and they, 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 they helped us realise that I was carrying PTSD. And I generally thought only soldiers got that. I really did. And I know it's a cliche, people say it, but, you know, I generally thought, when she says that, she says, I've never been to war before. She says, you've probably seen their violence in some soldiers. She went, it's no soldiers anyway. She went, your brain doesn't dictate if you've got a uniform on or not. And it was very true. So, you know, you learn coping mechanisms and whatnot. And I was, I don't know if it's severe, but I don't know that it was making us abuse substances to self-medicate and knew that I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm happy. I'm mentally happy. I'm physically, well, I'm still physically a fat bastard, but that's, that's another story. But um, I'm physically where I want to be in life. And, as you know, it's, it's good. Or, or it might have sounded like fun or that, but it's, it's, a lot of it does bring up even... I mean, to tell you what, I've, I've been trying to write a book for going on a year now, and I'm still stuck on page one because every time I go to type it and I start thinking about all the stuff again and I just do that and shut the computer I just, I can't bring myself to face it. So, you know, listen, a lot of it was mental and a lot of it was even fun, but I carry the scars physically and mentally now and I've had to learn to deal with all that before it swallowed me whole. I think you've hit an important note here. I, I definitely think you should write a book because some, you've lived through some of the most insane stuff I've ever heard. 
And there's so many people out there struggling with alcohol. And the people who get really addicted have usually been through some kind of trauma, childhood yeah. trauma. And it's this constant cycle then of self-medication for the trauma, but the alcohol kind of causes them to trash their lives or get into bad situations. And the cycle, it's like they want to end it and they're determined to end it, but they can't figure out how to end it. What advice exactly. would you give to what advice would you give to those people? You know, listen, it's the end of the day. I understand where trauma comes from, and I understand how easy it is to medicate it, but I promise you, all that does is mass over it and it, what happens is it pushes it down deeper and deeper. Your body can only take so much and eventually it's gonna explode. So in tapi or that then you've got the the dangers of addiction, uh, you've got the dangers of alcohol misuse and whatnot. If you've got problems like that, go and see somebody. This is a new day and age, isn't it? Like it used to be where there was a stigma to it. Nowadays everybody in a dog's gone to see some sort of therapist. There's nothing wrong with seeing them. And I tell you what, it just might help you. Or maybe even the yoga. I mean, I tried yoga years ago. I was, I was too unfit for it. But you see, they, they, they think my mental states were a really, really at peace. Whatever you need to do, help you, do it. Don't be scared of it. Because I'm telling you, so drinking pills is never an answer. It's not going to help you if you're dealing with something traumatic. It's just going to make you dependent on that as well. Yeah, because I've had therapy. I've had, I've had a lot of different therapists. And I found one that I really clicked with. And did you find a, a good therapist right away, or did you have to try to no, 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 right away. Right away. The first one I met, she was arrogant. And uh, I just didn't trust her from the get-go. And to be honest, I just started asking about to annoy her because she wasn't giving us any answers. And But then I started seeing a guy, and he was good, you know what I mean? Uh, I've not seen him in a while, actually. Uh, um, the stuff he told us, and it, just even in a couple of sessions, it helped. How many sessions did you have? Yeah, maybe about 20-odd on. So that's, that's, you're talking about 20 weeks, which is it's a long time, one a week. And did he, did he spend a lot of time going over your childhood, or was it more like helping you, your thinking processes? What they've done is um, they make you bring it up, so they want to go straight to the Santa next. Um They'll make you start talking about stuff. And just like this podcast... You start talking about one thing and it just snowballs. And before you know it, you've told them stuff that you didn't think you would ever tell a loving soul. And did, did you feel like you, you were releasing that tension well, by that telling def- them? Most definitely, most definitely. It's, uh, coming out can be quite emotional. No, you can. You've, got, you've, you've been holding on to stuff that you didn't even realise you were holding on to. It's here a couple of days later. It feels, honestly, like a physical weight coming off of you. But on the other hand, some of it can be you now you bring it to the, bring it to the surface and then you've got to deal with it. But it's always better to deal with it and just get it out. Appreciate your honesty with that, Paul, because it's so inspirational for people who are struggling to hear that someone's gone through it themselves. You were really in the deep end of violence and addiction with alcohol. <clears throat> and now you've come through it, we're at the point, you know, you've got a good family life. Yep. You're setting out to write your book, and it's, it sounds like you're living a good life these days. Ah, it certainly is. I mean, I could always <laughs> help an offer. It could help us get by page one of my book. But apart from that, you'd better believe I'm really, I'm happy where I'm at. And is there any stories or anything you think you've left out that you'd like to talk about? 
you know, it's not much. I think it's much. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's anything else you might know, maybe. If there's anything else well, you, you might ask. You, you um, said to me before this interview, you had a few questions to ask me about Sammy the Bull. I, I so. <laughs> when I watched your, uh, I'm, I'm a big Sammy the Bull fan. I, I love his podcast. I'm going to be honest now. Granted, the guy was a snatch and he done what he done, but, you know, that's... Who cares what happened in New York? That's in Scotland. Um, I, I like his podcast and I like his stories. But then I heard that you were um, you were messing about um, and you ended up going up against him. I thought, Jesus Christ, it was Lutcher from it. So what happened was, I established an ecstasy ring in Arizona. Uh-huh. Yep. In like, in like the 96, 97 around then. And I had about... Well, the SWAT team came May sixteenth, two thousand and two, but we had we had like the local scene locked down, uh-huh. and then in the in the late nineteen nineties, a new kind of ecstasy ring formed, and we didn't know who they were, but we had we ended up finding out that um, they were, a lot of them were throwing Sammy the Bull's name around. Let's let's put it out. That's how we found they were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I've now I've just done a ninety minute documentary for Discovery Channel with Sammy the Bull and his family. And they filmed me and my family. And what I've learned is that Sammy the Bull, his involvement in the ecstasy ring was very minimal. He was at home and he put money into it for his son. Uh-huh. But it, it was the ecstasy ring was actually run by a guy called Mike Papa. I see, brought, I've seen that. Yeah, he brought in Sammy the Bull's son, Gerard Gravano. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, me and Wildman ended up meeting him in Towers Jail in Arizona. That was the first time we met him. Um, but, yeah, so we ended up in competition with them. And one of the stories in this documentary is the night that Gerard tried to kidnap me with an armed crew and he was going to take me out to the desert. So that's that's all coming no, out no, this no, no. In, the Discovery, in the Discovery documentary, yeah. Oh, young bandit country there, son. No, I mean, I'm going to take you out in the desert. Oh, I didn't like the that Wild West. Imagine. Arizona's like the Wild West. Still. <laughs> <laughs> Aye, definitely. It's, um, you know, that, see, see your pal Wildman. Is he really that Coco Bananas? Well, he was. He, he lived it so hard and wild that he died uh, just about two years ago. Oh, from multiple, so multiple organ failure. But oh, he, um, you know, he, he chose that lifestyle. People say it's a waste of life, but it's not. You know, he he I was he was my... the Aryan Brotherhood offered him the full membership. The Hell's Angels invited him to their clubhouses. The Mexican cartel were running him around in Mexico in, in military jeeps. When I went Easy. down there, he lived a hell of a life. But the oh. lesson is for the young people, you know, wild man. He he, he always did more drugs than anybody. Yeah. Sometimes he'd he stay up for two weeks at a time smoking meth, smoking crack, and he, he really damaged his heart. And even even when he got released, he did manage to get it down to just weed and alcohol, but the alcohol was still pretty significant. And, you know, no doubt all that over the years contributed to him dying when he was in his 40s. Of course, listen, it's here at the end of the day, though, it still hurts just as much. Um when a friend or not, I've, I've had friends as well who say died and it does it. It leaves a sting. It's hard to go away. So my sympathies for you. And I know it was a couple of years ago now, but still. Yeah, appreciate that, Paul. It's because um, you know we were doing so much on YouTube and we were hanging out so much together. It, it was it was quite a shock when he died that young. Yeah. 
of course it was. Which um, what's that Michael Franchise like? Oh my goodness! So I hosted a lot of his gigs in the UK. I was going to go to Glasgow. I was trying to get tickets for the one in Addison. Yeah, I think the Glasgow one it got messed up a bit, but they did manage to do it out of a church. But there was some bad um, planning, and I think there was a last-minute cancellation that caused that of the venue or something. So it wasn't his and his team's fault, but they did try and save the day by doing it out of a church. And what yeah. I saw was everywhere Michael went, love and support, just like with Paul Ferris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an absolute gentleman. And I think, you know, because he was portrayed in Goodfellas, yeah. it, re- it really goes a long way, that that kind of, you know, rubber stamp that he was legit. And the article in Forbes as well, he was one of the highest ever earning members of the Mafia for the Colombo crime family. Aye, aye. And, if, and if you look at all the other people who are in that list, I think they're all dead, except for one of them is in prison, and only Francis is is out there, a free man, loving life, beautiful family, beautiful kids, everything. Exactly. I mean, he found his religion, and you can tell he's been sincere with it. So, God bless him. I mean, I wish him all the best with his life. Yeah, that. Um, I think that's how he ended up doing it out of the church in in Scotland was through his religious connections. Ah, uh, see, I'm I'm glad to because we were trying to get tickets to see him in the Radisson, and um, if I'd known it was in a church, I'd have just try to sneak in. Look, look, Paul. You know, people who've watched this, they've probably been on this on the edge of the seats like me, and and some of them who are watching this still might want to reach out to you. Yeah, Do, are you are you on the socials or anything for people to follow you or contact you? Yep, I certainly am. I'm on uh, Twitter and I'm on. I'm seeing my my partner set up Snapchat and I don't really know how to work it. So, but you can certainly follow us on Instagram. Um, my name is Big Smithy nineteen eighty four. So that's S M I T H Y nineteen eighty four. Big Smithy nineteen eighty four. And my Twitter account is one moment, please. I'm just looking at the same thing. Uh, at thirty, Paul Smith. So I need to any followers. I certainly would love it. Any and any questions anybody's got to ask without a doubt. Um, I promise everything I've said here today is the God's honest truth. I was never a gangster, and I was never a church mouse. I was never. You know, we grew up. Inspiring to be one or two people, Jimmy Boyle or Paul Ferris. So, and I think we kind of got a taste of both of the lives. They were just far more successful. And uh, I, that was that. We, but I've certainly seen my fair share of violence, and I, I promise you, not anything any I've said can be researched and checked in every word that it's true. And you've got the scars as well, Paul. I think no one's going to doubt what you've told us today. I mean, it's probably yeah. a hell of a lot more. That, that, that you're going to eventually put in your book and I hope you do get round to doing that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And for the viewers then, all of Paul's links, if you're watching this on the YouTube version, are going to be in the description box. Please go down. Like you said, if you've got a question for him, give him a shout on one of the socials. and uh, Let us know in the comments what you thought about this. And huge thank you for watching it. And most of all, Huge thank you to Paul for spending so much time with us today. So cheers, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Sean, can I ask you one thing? My, my pal's a yeah. big, big fan of yours and he's, he's badly yeah. injured. Is there any way you can give a shout out to my mate Paul, Andrew, uh, Paul Andrews? He's, he's a big, big fan of yours and he's badly injured just now. 
Yeah, shout out to Paul Andrews. And if you give me his address after this, Paul, I'll, I'll send him a signed copy of um, one of my books. There you go. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. I'll definitely do that. Oh, cheers, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for watching, everyone. Like I said, let us know in the comments what you think. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. Don't get gangsteritis, young people. Cheers. This podcast is sponsored by Gadfly Press. We're proud to announce the publication of Scotland's Johnny Boy, The Bird That Never Flew. From the back cover, all his life, Johnny Boy Steele has been running, first from an abusive father, then from the rigours of an approved school and a young offender's jail, and finally, from the harshness of adult prison. This book details how the Steele brothers staged the most daring breakout that Glasgow's Barlini prison had ever seen, and recounts what happened when their younger brother Joseph was falsely accused of the greatest mass murder in Scottish legal history. We're talking the ice cream wars there. If Johnny Boy had wings, he would have flown to help his family, but he would have to wait for freedom to use his expertise to publicise young Joe's miscarriage of justice. This is a compelling, often shocking, and uncompromisingly honest account of how the human spirit can survive against almost crushing odds. It is a story of family love, friendship, and, ultimately, a desire for justice. So, Scotland's Johnny Boy, The Bird That Never Flew, is available worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Cheers.